Okay, so we're going to be in Genesis 31, and we're going to start in verse 17, but I want to pray first. Uh, Father, thank you for this new year. Thank you for uh, loving us and training us. Thank you for the, uh, the gifts you give us. Thank you for giving and for taking away. And Father, I do pray that you would hold us and keep us fast throughout this year. And uh, this evening, we ask that you would teach us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so do you know how to interpret the Bible? That's a question I'd like to ask you tonight. Do you know how to interpret the Bible? I hope that you're getting better at that. It's not something that is automatic. But here's the second question. Do you know how to interpret your life? Can you exegete your life? Um, For example... Have you ever gone through a particular situation or seen a particular situation and just simply been utterly confused by it? What in the world is going on here? And you just have nothing, no handles to hold on to. You have no grid to to see it and interpret it. You see two people like Emily did. Emily and Addie went to the, the cash saver and there was two grandmas hitting each other with their canes. Um... Got on 911, we got a fight at the cash saver. (laughs) Grandma's beating with their canes. And there was people all around them trying to pull them off each other. There were two sisters. I don't know. I mean, Emily came running out in the parking lot. She's like, we got to get out of here. There's a grandma hitting another grandma with a cane. I was like, we're not getting out of here. I'm going to see. (laughs) So me and Shira were at the window like, what's going on? And then I realized, oh, I'm one of those people. I'm a looky-loo. <laughs> so when you see something like that, and you're like, how, you know, how do we make sense of this? Like, do we, the only way you can interpret a scene like that, or any scene, or any story, or even your life, your whole life story, your whole testimony, your family drama, you can only interpret these things um, by God's help with the Bible. And a lot of people don't think about things this way, but the more you know the Bible, the more you will be able to properly interpret life. You will be able to exegete scripture and exegete life. Now, of course, there's always, because we're not God, there's always the danger of wrongly interpreting life. You see what I mean? Um, But without the Bible, you stand no chance of ever even rightly interpreting life. So when we know the Bible, we interpret our life, we stay humble and teachable, asking God to help us see things clearly, if we're not seeing it clearly, etc. Okay? So, for example, um, there's going to be people in your life who God has more favor for than you. Can you think of anyone like that in the Bible? God just, like, poured favor on them. Joseph. After the prison part, right? Right. <laughs> Yeah, okay, good. Is there anybody that didn't, it doesn't seem like anything bad ever happened to them, only good, and it made people around them really angry, angry enough to murder them? That's the Cain and Abel story, isn't it? Abel's just, I mean, I'm sure bad things happen to Abel, you live that long, but that's not the point of the story. It's just saying, here's Abel and Cain, come from the same family, and God pours favor on Abel, and not on Cain, and Cain hits him with a rock, or however he killed him. Right? You're, if when you know that story, you're going to be able to look around in the world, and when you see someone having favor from God and you feel envy toward them, what can you say? You can say, I'm acting like Cain. I don't deserve anything. They don't deserve anything. If God wants to give them five bucks an hour and give me four bucks an hour, it's all grace anyway. God wants to give them a, a position or notoriety and not me, that's on God. But if you feel that anger, you feel, oh, that's Cain right there. And you suppress that. You see what I mean? That's just one of a million examples. You're going to have Cains in your life that hate you because of the favor on you. You're going to have, you're going to have lots in your life who you can tell are, they're ruining their life and, they're, and, they're, and their daughters are going to grow up to be little uh, profligates. You know, you, there's all the characters and all the stories in the Bible help you to interpret life. Right? And this is, in, this is, and the reason why I bring it up is because this is no less true than with the story of Jacob. 
I think Jacob is a lot like us. Um, and, he, and he goes through problems like we do. And we can put ourselves in the shoes of Jacob and, and learn from his faithful example. Make sense? So that when we find ourselves in a similar situation, we can say, this is a lot like what Jacob dealt with. Right? Wrong wife on a wedding night. So another seven years of slavery for my political... No, not like that. Not that bad. <laughs> Hopefully nothing like that ever happens to you. But you get what I'm saying. All right, so starting in verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Patamaram, and go, to go to the land of Canaan, that's the promised land, to his father Isaac. So remember last week, maybe, he had to leave the promised land to find a bride. Sound familiar? Okay, it's Jesus. He has to leave the, the promised land to find a bride, but then he runs into an evil tyrant, Laban, who enslaves him and ruins his marriage and does a bunch of other evil things to him, which we're going to talk about. And then God said, okay, you see how much they hate you. Now's the time for you to go back to the promised land. And when he goes back to the promised land, uh, that's the chapter we're reading right now. So he has to convince his wives to come with him. Remember that from last week. So he preached the gospel to his wives. He said, this is what God promised us. He's always been faithful, gave his testimony, gave some church history. He finally convinced them, right? And it wasn't easy because he had a vision from an angel. They didn't get the vision. We talked about that. They just had to trust him. So he preaches the gospel to them. They believe and they all now are exiting slavery into the promised land. That's what's happening right now. So in verse 17, he's loading his family on camels and they're heading out of Dodge, out of slavery and into the promised land. That's a beautiful picture though, really. I mean, uh, I think they say it's about 85 to 90% of um, wives, or families becoming Christian. I think when a, when a husband becomes a Christian, right? Praise God, what a blessing. When a husband becomes a Christian and repents and believes the gospel, they say it's like an 85 to 90% likelihood that the whole family comes with him. He comes home from work after talking to his coworker, and he's like, honey, you wouldn't heard what I you wouldn't believe what I heard. Did you know this about Jesus? Did you know this is what happened on the cross? And did you know God promises this and this? Right? And one day we could be raised from the dead and have immortal bodies and live with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, you probably wouldn't start there. <laughs> it gets cra- you, think that, you think forgiveness of sins is great. Wait till you hear about the new heavens and new earth <laughs> and your new body that can pass through walls. Wait till you hear about that. Um, <laughs> wait. So he's telling her and, then, and she's like, well, I want... I want to leave this old world and this sin behind. I want to follow my husband. Hey, kids, we're going. And they leave slavery into the promised land. That's, this is, Jacob, of course, had to go through this literally, right? Which probably, probably, he had probably a more difficult life than us, having to do this literally. He was literally enslaved. We're only slaves like 50%. Um, he was totally enslaved. And he lives in the desert and all of that. So... Anyway, we see him, we see Jacob going back to the promised land. He is being saved. He's already a Christian, but he's enacting what it means to be to save, to believe in the promises and to follow God and to take your family with you. Um, But also notice he has livestock in his possession that he had acquired, and he's got a lot of it. I'm not reading all of the different types of sheep and goats that he has. The Bible lists all of them because back when this was the Bible, that meant a lot. You understand what I mean? Back when Genesis was the Bible, when you were reading this gospel story, you would know all about those sheep and goats and you would be like, wow, he's rich. All right? So what promises is that? That's, the, that's a gospel promise. What is it? What are all those sheep and goats? That's gospel promise right there. Do y'all see it? Y'all gotta be able to see this. What would it be for us? It'd be wealth. Prosperity. Prosperity. That's right. Is that promised? Is wealth promised in the covenant? 
I will be God to you is the ultimate promise, meaning I will be God with you. I'm on your side. We're in covenant together. If someone blesses you, I bless them. If someone curses you, I curse them. But he also says, and I'm going to give you the land. And what's the land, Paul says in the book of Romans? He says the land is actually a type and an example of the earth. And who inherits the earth? If you inherit the earth, is wealth a part of the gospel promise? If you own the whole earth, are you rich? (laughs) It's full of gold. Streets of gold. So that is a gospel promise. Wealth is a gospel promise. Absolutely. You say that sometime and break people's brains because they hadn't thought through all of this. They, they immediately think you're doing prosperity gospel or greed or something like that. They don't understand how all this works. But here's the thing. We do live in a time of, of testing. When, when, the, when the heir is a child, is he still the heir by status? If you are an inheritor of the earth, are you an heir? You're an heir of a king. That's you. But when the heir is a child, does he get all of it? Not unless you want to, unless you want to ruin him and lose everything, right? Some of you are millionaires. You know, probably half of y'all are millionaires um, are soon to be. Your kids are going to get those million bucks. You're going to get the nice cars, the nice houses. Do you give it to them when they're four? No, but is it theirs? It's yes. theirs. It's theirs. When you walk around your house, I don't know if you are like me, but I tell when I'm in my property or my house, I tell my kids all the time, it's like, y'all know all of this is y'all's. Mm-hmm. And when, when me and, uh, and Jude and Jordan were working on our rent house, one of our mantra we had always say is like, we're doing this for the grandkids. Mm-hmm. We want to build, if we're going to build this thing, we want to build it in such a way that it lasts for them. Because it's theirs already. They're not even born yet and it's theirs. Okay? And Jude left them a little message behind the walls. Aww. Right? <laughs> it was pretty cool. So you, you see, you catch this vision. They're heirs. We're heirs. But when an heir is a child, he's treated as a slave. Galatians 4.1. Now what does it mean to be treated as a slave? You don't make any decisions for yourself. You don't really make your own decisions. Now don't think race-based uh, kidnapping slavery that happened to some extent and to a, a bit larger extent in our country. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about bond slave, um, that kind of thing. Like if you become a slave to the government when you have to go to jail and you have to work making license plates to pay your debt to society, that's that kind of slavery, okay? So you might be an heir, but the Bible says, but you're, you're not treated any different than a slave, an employee, a, 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 a disciple or like a pupil, so when you have to you have to wake up when who tells you to wake up? Mama, Mama tells you to wake up. I'm an heir though. I'm a king. That's true. Time to wake up. Right? You have to go to bed when they say go to bed. Right? Oh, did you just break God's law? You get a beating. It's a, it's a, it's not punitive, but it's training, right? It's not a flogging like a prisoner who's committed a crime, but it is a training. You don't, want to hurt your, you don't want to hurt a slave even, much less your own child. So you get a spanking. You see what I'm saying is this life is a training period for the heirs. And that means though wealth is promised to you, you don't get it all in this life. But how much do you get? Whatever he thinks is good for your training, okay? Now, if you get a portion of your inheritance, a down payment, a token... A little bit of an allowance. So if you give your kid, anybody give their kids allowances? No? Here and there, or pay them for like when they go over and above. The money was already theirs, right? Their name's on the will, right? Their name's on the will. But you give them a little of allowance here, and as they get older, that gets bigger. Because what are you trying to do? You're trying to train them for when they get that full inheritance. That's what this life is all about. It's a training for the next life. So I'm thinking we're going to be doing some cool stuff. Because sometimes the training sucks, right? <laughs> and the spankings certainly suck. But, uh, but so next life is going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. So that's, what, that's how you can work out. the. When I say wealth is a gospel promise, 
That, can you, do y'all understand what I'm saying that? It's promised to you. You are an heir. You will inherit the earth. You are a child of God who owns the earth. But you don't get it all in this life. You get a portion of it in order to manage. And if you manage it well, according to God's law, you could ask for more. And it's, it's very likely he gives you more. But if you don't manage it well, you don't tithe it because you don't even see it as his. You don't pay him tribute. You're not generous. You don't uh, save. You don't uh, wisely use it. You waste it. And then you ask from, I would like more of a down payment on my inheritance. Do you think he's going to give it to you? No. But does, he, does it mean he's not giving it to you? It just means he's not giving it to you yet because you're not ready for it. The same is true of every gospel promise. Who here has prayed for healing before? Is health, you know, we're all praying for Jared's healing, right? We're all praying for Monica's healing, right? We've all prayed for healing before. Is health a gospel promise? Yes. By his stripes, we are healed. That's spiritual healing. No, it's not. Stop it. It's not spiritual healing, whatever that would be, right? Jesus had an immortal, perfect body. And that is the body that we will have, Paul says. And I promise you, there will be no more bad health. That's our inheritance. That's pretty awesome, right? But we only get a portion of that in this life. And we have to steward our health properly. You see what I'm saying? So this is true of all the promises in the Bible. Jacob gets the sheep and the goats. He's been a faithful steward. God is blessing him. Now, right now, he's living in eternity. He's got it all. But, but he's getting this as a down payment. So everyone see that wealth is a promise. All these sheep and goats, that's part of the promise. But it's not automatic. And it does require stewardship. Amen? Amen. All right, moving on. Verse 19. Laban had gone to shear his sheep. And Rachel stole her father's household goods. Household gods. Can someone tell me when we have 10 minutes? I don't, I don't have a way to see the time. So, so he's loading up his family. They're heading out of town, okay? It's the exodus. They're leaving. He's got all this, this stuff with him. When he's about to leave, Laban has gone to shear the sheep. Apparently a big operation far out of town. And Rachel stole her father's household gods. So she goes over to the fireplace mantle and takes all the little statues. And they're little because later you're going to see she can hide them by sitting on them. Right? So it's just a bunch of little Canaanite gods. So Laban is a syncretizer. You call that a syncretizer. He's someone who worships the true God and, and idols. It's like most Christians in America, honestly. What? Casey Bissett. He got all these little things. Yeah, and he, and he probably prays to them for special, you know, pray to this God, pray to that God. Now, a lot of commentators say that these gods represented, um, they were like gods of the household. And so they represented almost like what we would think of as a title for a car, like a title for a house. A lot of commentators say that it represented the title for all of his stuff. Okay? So Rachel... Jacob doesn't know. Rachel steals her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. So remember, we said it's okay to lie to tyrants. He lies to the tyrant. He tricks him just like God tricks the devil. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. That's the promised land. So what are our Exodus themes here? Exodus themes. Slavery, a tyrant, tricking the tyrant, exiting the slavery. Do what? Passing over the river into the new land, mocking the gods. We're going to see soon that the little, I mean, if your God can be stolen and sat on, you can see, I think he's being, it's being mocked. The Exodus, remember, he, he judges all the gods of the Egyptians. Every plague is for one of their gods, mocking the gods. And deceiving the tyrant. That, it's, that's the exodus. Now what about the gospel? It's the exact same thing. Jesus, right? The true Jacob. Mocks the gods of this earth. Tricks the devil. Takes his brides and all of his people. 
and moves through not the waters of the Euphrates, but the waters of death into the new creation world in the ultimate exodus. And we all go through with him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, third day, Jacob crosses over the, the river into the promised land. I mean, you, you got to see that, right? He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. Now, is the, that's another Exodus theme. Are y'all, am I losing everybody? You got, remember in the Exodus, whew, they're free, but the Pharaoh's ticked. And so he chases after them for a season. Remember that? This is exactly what happens again. Laban's going to chase them. And try to kill him. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Sure, we cross over into the, into the new creation, right? We've been saved, we've been liberated, but we still got the devil and his demons to tend to. We still, got all, we still have enemies to face. We still have tests to go through. It's not over yet. It's not over yet. All right, verse 24. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Laban, either good or bad. So God restrains Laban, the little devil, and keeps him at bay so that he cannot stop Jacob from accomplishing his calling, which I do think is exactly what happened in the true gospel. Satan is bound with a chain so that he cannot deceive the nations. It doesn't mean he's not here. I do think he was cast to earth and he roams about around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But all you have to do is resist him and he flees. But if you don't resist him and you give him a foothold, he's got you. All right? Verse 25. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? So you see what he thinks about Jacob. He thinks he's enslaved his wives and driven them away with the sword. And he thinks Jacob is evil. Sound familiar? He is the accuser of the brethren. That's what the devil does. That's what Pharaoh did. Remember when Pharaoh uh, basically kidnapped Sarah and put him in his harem? And then he finds out that Abraham lied. Hey, you lied to me. You didn't tell me that she was your husband, that you were her husband. It was like, yeah, because you would have killed me. Same thing happened with Abimelech. Same thing's happening here. Laban, all self-righteous. Remember this dude snuck in a different woman on on the guys and then made his other daughter go in the same bed with her sister. This dude is a wicked piece of work. And he's like, why did you flee secretly and trick me, you naughty boy? You're the bad guy here and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth. And that means joy and songs with tambourine and lyre. Okay, barf. Y'all, if you've read the rest of this story, you know this guy's full of it. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now that you have done foolishly, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. See, he's raging. Just as Pharaoh raged and he chased after him. He's raging and he's chasing after them. Just as the devil now, having been disarmed, is raging and slashing about. Death throes. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force, which he would have. You'll remember earlier that he refused to let him take them because he thought they were his slaves. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. All right, so that's enough for this chapter. Hopefully you all know the rest of the story. Jacob doesn't know that Rachel has the gods. So... He comes in there and he's ripping the place apart. You liar, you done me wrong. This is the same guy. You don't know this yet because we didn't read this part. He spent his daughters the whole dowry. 14 years of Jacob's work. He wasted it all. Jacob's been nothing but good to him. 
He tried to steal the daughters. He's been a, nothing but a lion cheating slave master. And now he's in there accusing him of being wicked. He's devil. He's the accuser. And Jacob's like, look, I don't got your gods. Does, are the gods the title for everything that he has? That's what commentators say. But I also think the writer is trying to mock the gods. I mean, how do you steal somebody's gods? Right? And then as you read it, you find out Rachel's menstruating and sitting on the gods in the corner, obviously defiling the gods, mocking them completely. And so dad's not going to ask her to stand up. She's like, ah, oh, dad, I'm, you know, she's got cramps. She doesn't want to stand up. And so he, she's over there sitting on the gods. So the whole story is a big fat mocking of the gods. And he doesn't find them anywhere. And he's like, ah. Oh. So Jacob basically says, I'm not trying to steal your, your son's inheritance. Let's make a covenant. And they go to the boundary of the land and they make a covenant and they set up the little covenant memorial stones. And basically Jacob says, I'm not going to come and try to take your stuff. Your sons can have their inheritance. I have plenty. You go your way. I'll go my way. Stay off my property. So that's basically the end of that particular story. All right. So let's move on to the next chapter. How much time do we have? Awesome. So now, um, verse 1. 32 verse 1. So Jacob is finally... Man, you know, you know the next day he's like, finally, this has been the worst 20 years. We, we've figured out how many years it was. I think it's been like 20 years, I think, that he has been away from the promised land. He's like, these 20 years have just been hell on earth. I'm so glad to be done with that. All right? Time to kick up my feet. <laughs> how many years... How many years does he live? Jacob? 14 as a slave. Uh, and oh, oh. oh, he lives a long time, yeah. He didn't, he, I don't remember. He's living, living at 75. Yeah, he, he lives like oh, hundreds plus. Yeah. So, but these 20 years have been pretty rough. Um, he's ready to kick his feet up, a little R&R, maybe a little vacation, a little sabbatical. God, you know, that was a tough training. But I think I'm pretty mature now. I think I'm ready. You know, I think we can pre- we can be done with the the suffering and the trial. <clears throat> oh no! <laughs> Out of the frying pan and into the fire, <laughs> as you're going to see. But first, before he goes out of the frying pan and into the fire, God's going to help him out because this is what God does. Verse one: Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Isn't that something? So he's crossing into the promised land, and he runs into the angels. What, remember when he left the promised land? What happened? He, he, came in, he ran into the angels. On his way out, he meets the angels. He spends a night there. God gives him covenantal promises. I'll be God to you and to your offspring after you, just like Abraham. And he names the place Bethel, God's house. And so then he goes into his slavery after having been comforted by God and being and reminded of his promises and reminded that there's angels protecting him. He goes in there with God. Now he's leaving again back into the promised land. And there's the angels. They're like the bouncers of the promised land. They're like the angels at the, at the gate of the Garden of Eden. All right, that's what, they're like the, the angels that were sewed on the, on the um, massive curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Because angels are sent forth from God. They're messengers from God to earth especially in this administration of the covenant. He sends out angels as messengers. And you know the stories. They bring messages and they bring bread and they blind sodomites. They do all kind of cool stuff for everybody. Um, But here they are, bouncers of the promised land, and he runs into them again. And when Jacob saw them, he said, so he sees angels, which, you know, I feel like would be terrifying. Um, He's used to it. And when, and, and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he's coming in. He's like, okay, this is, this is a good place. God lives here. You know, God set up camp here. So he called the name of that place Manahan. Does anybody have footnotes? Yeah. What do they say it means? Two camps. Two camps. Isn't that cool? Isn't that something? So he comes here and he's like, this is God's camp. And he names it two camps. 
So what is that? I think, and people say, and been saying for thousands of years of reading this, that he's saying this is God's place and this is my place. He's in church. He's saying he's, he has been gathered with his Lord. He's in fellowship. And remember, what is the promise to him? The promise was to Abraham. But the promise to Abraham was, I'll be God to you and to your offspring after you. He's the offspring. He's one of the children. And God reminded him of that promise when he came in. He said, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to be God to you on account of your father, Abraham. I made that promise. And he's coming back in. He's like, okay, man, this is God's place. And it's my place too. Because God and him are in covenant together. God loves him. God said, I'm going to be with you, right? He basically, when he names it two camps, is exhibiting his faith in God's promises. Like, this is my place. This is God's place. We're a team. God's on my side. God is with me, right? Remember what he told his wives before he left? He said, God's promise, he's going to be with me. That's the Christmas message. God with us, right? So Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir. So he's going back to the promised land, send messengers to Esau. Messengers, by the way, is the same word, angels, which is interesting. The country of Edom, instructing them. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. Now what was the prophecy? Who will serve who? Esau will serve uh, uh, Jacob. But Jacob is polite and he's diplomatic. He says, my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. He's not trying to take the seat of the head of the table. He's not trying to put honor on himself. He's giving honor to Esau. Right? <clears throat> I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. I want to get along with his brother. You know, going back into the promised land. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. That's a biblical expression for he's coming to fight. Um, now it's ambiguous though. It usually means they're coming to fight. Sometimes in Hebrew, a few times, doesn't necessarily mean he's coming to fight. So while we're reading this story, we don't know if Esau's coming to fight yet. And, and Jacob probably doesn't know yet either. I mean, he's not sure. Esau's kind of a bad guy. We all remember that from the story. What's Pastor Scott? said the next verse, he's greatly afraid and distressed. That's right. He's, he's, guessing, he's, guessing. he's concerned. Well, and also it says, and there are 400 men, which is, if you read the book of Samuel, the, the number for a militia. So you can have one solid militia, 400 men, in the book of Samuel. So, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. You see, he thought he was going on vacation, right? But as soon as he's done with the Laban issue, now he's got to deal with Esau. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. In other words... Maybe he'll only kill half my family. All right. And this, by the way, as far as gospel themes, I think is the persecution of the church by the apostate church. Um, the beast from the, from the uh, land, if you want to know those categories. It's right out of the gospel, the church is always persecuted by the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. That's initially Rome and apostate Israel. But you see that all over the Bible. You see the tyrant and the apostate Christians, the false church, teaming up to attack God's seed. And it still happens to this day, all the time. So that's a big theme in the Bible here. Esau is an apostate. He's in the covenant. He's circumcised, but he's apostate. Now he's coming after him. Laban, the tyrant, comes after him. Now apostate church comes after him. All right, so that's it for the reading. I can see I'm not going to read anymore because I've lost some of y'all. Um, so let's see. I'll do, I'll do a cartwheel here and maybe... Uh, <laughs> how much time we got? Uh, 17 minutes. Okay. Well, let's talk about when things go from bad to worse. Right? First, the Sarah tragedy. 
takes off the veil. You know, that was terrible. Solution, be a slave for another seven years. Okay, then Laban steals the whole dowry, enslaves him, treats him like garbage. And now he's going into the promised land. God's promised him, I'm going to be God to you and your children after you. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you blessings. And all of this, like, Lord, you know, just take me on home now, right? Done with all this. Um, And it's so bad that he has to divide his family in half so that all of his children aren't killed. That's pretty bad. I mean, imagine you have to do that. You have to say, okay, you go this way and you go this way. Maybe, hopefully, one of you makes it. I mean, honestly, we could ne- we've never gone through anything like that, I don't suppose. All right? But also imagine what other options Jacob has. Does he have any other options? Can he go back to Laban? God's told him to go this way. Can't go back to Laban. That's where you gotta go first. So is he, what do they say, following God's will for his life? He is, isn't he? But it's really, really terrible. Right? I feel like when we go through terrible things, when things go from bad to worse, we begin to think, well, we must not be in the, in the will of God. And that might be true. We might be getting a spanking. Like in the book of Corinthians, there's people who are behaving and they're dividing the church and they keep getting sick. And then God kills some of them. So they're going through suffering and that's for their sin. But Jacob's not going through suffering for his sin. He's actually being very righteous and faithful. He's doing his best. He's telling Laban, if you read the chapter, he tells Laban, I've done nothing but serve you. Everything I've done, I've done for you. And you continue to do this for me. And so he's doing everything great. Right? But look at verse 32, verse 1. We already saw this. But then God sends the angels and reminds him once again. So he's leaving Laban. God says, you need some angels right now. Here's the angels. You know. Spend a night here. And um, that rejuvenates him, I think, because he's about to go face Esau. So I think God was good there. <clears throat> Look at verse 9. I said I wouldn't read any more, but just a couple more verses. But look at verse 9. Because he prays. And Jacob said, he split his family up. One group's about to be slaughtered. God's promised him, I will be God to you. And he's walking in the will of God, going exactly where God told him to go. So what can you do? So he prays to God and he said, and this is a good lesson for us. Oh, God of my father, Abraham. And God of my father, Isaac. So when he says that, what's he what's he reminding God of? Reminding him of the gospel. That's right. You promised. Oh, Lord, who said to me, you said to me. You see, he's reminding God of the past. Not that God needs a reminder, but this is how people pray in the Bible. You said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Okay, now I'm obeying and it's getting worse. (laughs) If you haven't been there, you're going to be there. This is the quintessential test of a Christian. This is what it's like. This is exactly what David's going through, by the way, in our sermon series, which we're going through. Um, And you can see it in Psalm 69, verse 6. David basically prays. He prays and says, don't let them stone me, essentially. Um, And I don't want to preach my sermon now, but he basically says, don't let them stone me. Uh, And he says this, he says, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. For your sake. He's not angry, I don't believe. But he said, they're trying to stone me. And it's because I'm doing what you tell me to do. Isn't that something? David said, I've become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons, meaning my family has rejected me because I'm following you. Has anybody here had their family reject them because they're following Jesus? Some of you should not, don't embarrass yourself, but some of you should raise your hands because that's what's happening to you. All right. What does Job, but, okay, so, but then look at verse 10. What does he say? So he says, now you promised, and I'm, and, and, and I'm doing what you said, and things are getting worse. <sighs> then he goes to verse 10. I think this is important. You've got to add this to it. 
I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love. That's covenantal love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. You see what he's saying? Oh, I mean, it's, this theme is all over the Bible. So he's saying, I'm following you and things are getting worse and half my family is about to die. But when I came this way, I just had my stick. <laughs> I didn't even have one, much less two parts of my family. Okay? He's basically saying exactly what Job said. Well, you gave, so you can take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a very important lesson in following Jesus is we have to be able to receive the good and the bad. Right? We can't get bitter when things are bad and we can't get complacent when things are good. Right? Paul said, I've learned to be content with little and with much. It seems I read somewhere that Job was around the same time. Around Genesis. Mm, oh, around the same time of these events. Uh, I believe Job was a king of one of these particular regions. Would Jacob have known? I don't know if it's the exact same time period. I I have it in my notes. I I mentioned it about six months ago or so. I could look it up. But Job is is thought to be a king of one of these uh, little nations around here. Um, You'll see what he's saying, though. He's saying, everything that I have, my career... That all came from you. I followed you and you gave me my career. Now I'm going to follow you. You want to take it from me? That's fine. You gave it to me. And I didn't deserve any of it. He's not presuming on it. That's right. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all of this. And now notice right here, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness. Faithful to what? Like when you're faithful in your marriage, you're faithful to what? Your covenant that you made in your marriage. He's saying you've been faithful to your gospel promises. You've been faithful to your covenant promises that you made to Abraham and Isaac, my fathers. And I'm not worthy of one bit of it. And you've been loving to me. That's steadfast love. That's covenantal love, which uh, loves in spite of sins. And, uh, And he's saying, I don't deserve any of that. So if you want to take half of my family... And you take half of my family. I came, in this, I came into this world with a stick. And I'll leave with a stick if that's what you want. Right? Job said I came in naked and, and I left naked. Are you telling me something right there? 7.50. Sorry. You oh, nine minutes. I know, but it just wasn't a clock. It was I'm some sorry. sort of emojis. Or <laughs> so, almost done. Um, then he goes on. Well, first of all, what's he convinced of? Sovereignty of God over everything. Right? Do you believe that? He's sovereign over everything. He's also convinced that God loves him. Right? And he's also convinced that God is faithful to his promises. That's faith. And that's that. So then after that, verse 11, he's going to pray. He's going to give his specific um, petition. It's very important. Does he trust God? Yes. Is he following God? Does he remember the promises? So now he's going to, based on those promises, he's going to ask for something. And he says in verse 11, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Okay, that's good to ask for. And then he says, But you said, (laughs) See that? But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring. Don't let him kill all my wife and children. You said you would do good to me and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You said all the Christians would come from me, basically. You said all the whole world would be filled with Christians from me. So don't kill my wives and my kids. Do you all see the correlation there? This is a great example for us in prayer. Right, the, we, when we make petitions to God, it's based on promises. You understand? But of course, you have to understand how the promises work. You don't get it all right now. It's this time training. 
You're still treated like you know, you're in training. So you don't get all of them. But they're all yours to ask for. You see what I'm saying? If you don't ask, then what? You don't get. You don't receive. If you ask as a selfish little brat and you're not ready for it, then what? You don't get it. But I do think if you ask in Jesus' name, which means under His authority, according to His might and power, trusting in Him and obeying Him, you will receive. Just like that. And uh, <clears throat> so He prays and He asks. Um, all of our petitions to God must be based on the promises to God. Or promises from God. So what has He promised us? Do you pray for healing? Yes, because He promised us health. Do you pray for wealth? More opportunity to advance the kingdom. Yes, because he promised us that. Do you pray for protection? Yes, Yes, he promised. I will curse those who curse you. That's what he promised. He said, I will disrupt um, the fowler's net. I will will stomp the head of the slithering serpent that you don't see. He protects us. These are various proverbs, promises of protection. Even the threats you don't see, I'll protect you from those. Even the ones you don't know about, I'll protect you. Does he promise the salvation of our children? Coming in with that left hook there. I, I warmed you up. Bang, bang. Right? Just teasing. Health, yes. Wealth, yes. Protection, yes. Salvation of our children? I will be God to you. What does that promise? What does that mean? If you believe in him, he will be God to you. He will be Yahweh to you. That's another way of saying you're saved. All right, you understand what I'm saying? Now, you have to believe the promise. You can't be an Esau. But if you're like Jacob and you're like, but you said he believes. This is two camps. I'm going to camp with God right here. Because <laughs> you said he believes. He believes it. God with us, Emmanuel. That's a promise of the gospel, right? Is God with you yes. if you believe? Yes. Is God to you? I will be God to you. Amen. But then right after that, it says, and to your children. Do you believe that? It says it. You know? And I know not everybody understands how all this works. But as your pastor, it says it. It says it right after it says that he'll be God to you. And then it says, and I'll be God to your children. Do you, now, so do you believe that? You don't have to understand everything. But you go to God and you say, when your kid is being a little derelict, a little bad kid... Maybe even they get older and they apostatize. God forbid. You go to God and you say, you said, you said. You know what I'm saying? On what basis can you pray for anything but his promises? And you say, but you said you would be God to me and to my children. This is my child. You promised. And you petition him to save them. You see what I mean? Even if they're little and you don't know if they're regenerated or not, you can't see the Holy Spirit. We can't look around and be like, oh, I think the Holy Spirit's working in his life and his life, but not his life. We can't do that. Um, and sometimes the people you think the Holy Spirit is working with turns out definitely not true. And then the, <laughs> and then the person you thought was going to be the worst turns out, man, God's really working in their life. Uh, trust me, that happens all the time. Teach junior high and watch the kids ra- grow up. Some of the most godly kids that I taught were the worst little punks. I'm, it's just so funny. The people that turned out to be apostates and the people that turned out to love the Lord. Do what? It's still not over. Still oh, it's still not over. That's right. Amen. It's still not over. Um, but, but he promised, and that's why we can pray for the salvation of our kids. Do you believe in God's sovereignty and salvation? Yes. Yes? But, but so should we pray for things? Is he sovereign over health? Yes. But we should pray. Yes. Sovereign over wealth? Yes. But we should pray. Yes. Sovereign over salvation? Yes. But we should pray. Because he promised it. And we should not pray with doubt. What does James say if you pray with doubt? A double-minded man is un- in unstable in all his ways. And you will not receive. You have to take God at his word. Period. Take it. You're like, that's that. You said it. I'm taking it. Unless you send me a vision and say otherwise, sorry, that kid is, a, is an Esau. Unless you say otherwise, I'm going with you're saving him. <laughs> that's the way I think you should handle it. So how much time we got? A couple minutes. 
All right. So now he's done praying. Sometimes you got to get up, and head out of the prayer closet. When you're suffering, though, I, you know, when I'm suffering, I prefer to curl up in a little ball and feel sorry for myself. Actually, what I do is I go off into the woods and sit by myself in a lawn chair. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of like curling up in a hole. You know, the water table's too high in Louisiana for the whole thing. But so but that's what we want to do. But he's like, okay, he's done praying. And then in verse 13, I just love this right here. He said, so he stayed there that night. Where? Stayed where? He's in two camps. He's in fellowship with God, right? A little taste of heaven. You know, a little covenantal renewal service. And he stays there that whole night. And from what he had with him, here's where he's going to act. He took a present for his brother Esau. So he gets done. He prays. He asked. The horse is prepared for battle, right? But victory belongs to the Lord. He's like, I prayed. I asked. I'm going to spend time. But now he gets up the next morning and he's got a strategy to work. And I don't know if y'all know the strategy, but he's just sending one undeserved gift of mercy after the next wave. He sends messengers with waves of presents to Esau to meet him on the way. They're coming this way. And he's like, you go bring him this. And now you go bring him this. There's an iPad for you and and an iPad for you. He's just sending You you get a car. You get a car. He's sending them all off to Esau. So Esau's just like, ah, he's foaming. And he's like, have some more sheep. He's heaping, you know how Jesus says, heaping coals on his head. He's, He's loving his enemy. How can he love his enemy? How could he be so merciful, sending all his stuff to him? Grace. Because he realizes it all came by grace. And so he can just love his enemy, love his enemy, trying to win him, trying to get him to chill and to divert his wrath. I think it's a great strategy. Pretty good, wise strategy, I think. And uh, we'll have to find out next week if it works or not. All right, we're done. Y'all have a good evening.